Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, production of iHeartRadio. And happy revenge of the fifth. If you thought one Star Wars holiday was too much, how about two? (laughs) (laughs) Here we are. Yes. I love Revenge of the Fifth. Like the name. Right. I do feel bad because today is also... As this episode comes out, if you're listening to it when it comes out, my little brother's birthday. Mm -hmm. And I'm ashamed to admit, I thought about Revenge of the Fifth first. And then his birthday... But to be fair, I once asked him, this was years and years ago, but I once asked him, name my birthday, but when is it? He said March 7th. So Mm. that's way, way, way off. That's not not even close. (laughs) I don't think I know any of my siblings. Oh, that's not true. I know two of my siblings' birthday. So the third one, sorry. Uh, (laughs) I don't even know my parents' birthday really well. My dad's, I finally figured it out. And my mom's, because hers is four days after mine. So I'm not really good with dates either. I am excellent with dates. I know yeah, you are. I, it is one of my weird things. In fact, there's that weird moment. Like I know a lot of people use Facebook for birthdays, but I usually just Me. kind of remember. There are friends I haven't talked to in forever and I'll be like, oh, her birthday is today. Should I? And then I, I feel like it's weird if you haven't talked in a long time. Right. I have one person who I kind of mentioned her a little bit when we were talking about the girl games, essentially the board games that we had, because mm-hmm. she was the rich friend I had who had all the games. Yeah. I, I know her birthday. I know it so well. And I just, I don't know why. And I haven't talked to her in 20 years. <laughs> Sometimes those things just get lodged in. Yeah. I feel like Revenge of the Fifth is a relatively newer, because I remember May the 4th being around when I was in high school. Probably before that, but Revenge of the Fifth, I've only really become aware of in the past few years. I don't know if I was just missing it. (laughs) Like the last four years, I think I figured out what it was. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's right there, though. It's right there. It is. But think about it for me, like in sync, it's going to be May. That's the meme that I see in my Uh, head. Type mm-hmm. of thing. Those are the things I know. Cinco de Mayo, which is a complete mm-hmm. excuse for white people to get real trashed, uh, mm-hmm. celebrating something that's not theirs. Mm-hmm. Those yes. are the things I know. <laughs> well, today we are celebrating something different. Um, All right. Yes. Um, so this is a feminist movie Wednesday to mm-hmm. be on the holiday. This has yes, been a very yes. busy week for me as a Star Wars fan. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So you can see the past episode we did on the prequel trilogy, because these are a bit different than our normal feminist movie Fridays, where we pick one movie and do like themes and plot analysis. This is much more like kind of focusing in on one character. However, you might remember that we did not one, but two episodes on Princess Leia already. Mm -hmm. And they were quite long, both of them. Mm -hmm. So uh, you can go find those if you want. We are going to talk about uh, some some more about her in this, but we're also going to talk about um, two women you might not be familiar with who were vital mm-hmm. to making these movies. And I'm really, really excited to talk about them. Um, we've also done an episode on... We've done a lot of episodes on Star Wars. We've done yes, one we on the viewing of it. We've done one on the feminism of Star Wars. We're going to do one on the sequel trilogy. They're out there. Uh, we were talking about getting Holly on here to talk yeah. about Rogue One, which I think would be fantastic. I think we should. I Oh, I totally think we should. I think I could just sit back and drink while y'all do that. I Except for I, when I yell at you for not 
telling me and warning me of things. Of the ending, yes. I bet Holly would give me a stern talking to as well, actually. <laughs> it was a complete, it was nothing malicious behind it. I just <laughs> get in my own head sometimes and don't realize people don't know everything about Star Wars. <laughs> as well as the fact that I am not about tragedy. And so I have to give a heads up. Mm-hmm. And that's where most people, normal people, would be like, I don't like spoilers. I'm like, I, I need all of them. Right. Yes. Well, I've learned my lesson and I'm trying to do better. I'm trying to do better. <laughs> You've done well. You've done well. This Thank was you. the one big, unforgivable yeah. one. Oh, unforgivable. Oh, no. For now. We'll see. <laughs> well, the unforgivable part doesn't have a for now usually, but all right, I'll take I'm it. I'm just saying right now, it seems like it's going to be far, 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 far away. <laughs> like a certain galaxy. I see what you did there. You can also listen to me and Holly talk about The Empire Strikes Back on Movie Crush. Which, if you want to hear, like, the most beautiful, passionate nerddom that you might not understand, it's for you. Um, we're going to do Return of the Jedi soon, I hope. I've already got my outline. It's ready. It's ready. I think the host of that show, Chuck, is a little, like, oh. <laughs> he remembers. He He'll does. never forget. He won't forget. He won't forget when we're like, Shh, Chuck, we're talking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> also, I forgot to bring up this when we did the prequels, which I think is actually a really good... When we were talking about the trauma and grooming of Anakin Skywalker to become Darth Vader, point is that uh, a couple years ago, I was at Dragon Con, which is this huge convention in Atlanta, and it was a panel of voice actors, and this young boy, I would say like four years old, came up during the Q&A portion and he asked, why is Darth Vader? And we were all like, oh, how do we explain like evil and temptation and all this stuff to this kid? And I brought this up to my co-host, Lauren, on Saber Podcast. And she said something like, he is the result of many systems of society failing so hard. <laughs> 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 Which I really appreciated. I was like, yep, that's it. Is. That's it. So, let's get into this episode, but again, we've done a lot on Princess Leia. We've talked a lot about Star Wars, so very brief discussion of the plot. Essentially, the evil empire is terrorizing a galaxy far, far away, and a young human female, Princess Leia, played by Carrie Fisher, is one of the political and military leaders of the ragtag group fighting against it called the Rebellion or the Alliance. Falls in love with a smuggler, Learns she has a twin brother who happens to be her best friend and they were separated at birth. Discovers her father is actually Darth Vader, a man who tortured her, destroyed her homeworld, and is the right hand of the fascist entity she's been fighting her whole life. Oh, and she can use the Force, which is this power that you can connect to. Her cause is victorious. The rebellion, the alliance is victorious. She gets the guy. She's reunited with her twin. Happy ending if you do not go beyond that very end of Return of the Jedi. Mm -hmm. Happy ending. <laughs> mm -hmm. So the first installment came out in 1977, uh, Star Wars, later renamed Episode 4, A New Hope, which confused me a lot, mm -hmm. followed by Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back in 1980, and Episode 6, The Return of the Jedi in 1983. And these films had a huge cultural impact you can tell, sometimes called the American myth. If you want to know more about just how enormous of an impact they had, uh, again, check out our Leia episodes, both of them, all of them. 
any of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's not exaggerating to say they changed our cultural landscape and film forever. And Annie, I know you're already going through all of your lists of how many times Star Wars is referenced. And I now yep. have that in the back of my head all the time too. Yes, I keep Thanks a tally every day of how many times I encounter a Star Wars reference that I'm not looking for. Right. And it's usually between 15 to 25. I want to say I just recently watched a movie just made not too long ago. There was a reference and I was like, what? What? <laughs> I know that reference. I will say. Uh, <laughs> Since now I've seen the movie going back and now that I know that reference, I'm like, oh, there it is. I get yeah. it. Mm-hmm. So uh, Leia Organa's impact was obviously massive too, especially for girls and women, an impact that is still felt and seen to this day. I see those pictures of Carrie Fisher, and I'm just like, yes, give me more yes. of that. Mm-hmm. I look at the signs of pretty much any woman's protest. Again, yes, you see her as the like center of rebellion. Mm-hmm. There are very, very few other iconic women characters that have had the lasting impact, even close to her. So yes, for sure. Um, and she's appeared in numerous books, comics, video games, and television shows. Leia was the only character mentioned by name in the opening crawl. So that yeah, yellow text, iconic yellow text that's going up. She's the only one in episode four. And it's almost immediately established that despite her young age, she is a troublemaker for the evil empire. She sets the action of the original trilogy in motion. She stares death in the eyes and does not flinch. Um, in fact, has some witty comments. (laughs) She regularly does not bend to male expectations, especially those expectations around women. In the film, Vader expects her to give under torture. She doesn't. Tarkin expects her to break when threatening her planet, and she doesn't. Luke expects her to be a damsel in distress, demure, and she isn't. Han expects her to fall for his charm and take his lead. Nope, she doesn't. And as the audience, we didn't expect this young, petite princess to be the leader against the fight against the Empire especially when these movies came out. And she is. She is the leader. She is the one that is getting stuff done. Loss after loss, she soldiers on. She is already the hero when we meet her, respected by those around her. In Empire Strikes Back, right from the start, we see her commanding troops and overseeing the evacuation of the entire rebellion as the Empire, the forces that tortured her and destroyed her home planet, attack. And when I was a kid, that scene really stuck out to me that there was this kind of small woman who was commanding mostly men, and they were just like, okay, yep, we trust you, we're going to do what you say. She is a part of the planning and action throughout these films. She's determined to do everything she can for the cause that she believes in. And all these things while still remaining feminine. When uh, these films came out, it was the 1970s, so yeah, women's lib, you had Roe v. Wade, and then the backlash to all of that. Women weren't allowed to serve in the U.S. Army, when this came out. And she is, for the most part, the only woman in these films, but she speaks her mind, refuses to back down. She rises above being the token woman. And I will say, Carrie Fisher was a huge part of that. You can see our Princess Leia episodes, but she was really like, I know I think the character would do this, it's like this, let me rewrite stuff for you. So she was really key. Notably, Mon Mothma, one of the only other women in the original trilogy, is also a leader of the Alliance, but you only see her very briefly. She does pop up in other Star Wars properties, but in this original trilogy, you see her for like a minute, maybe. (laughs) So, believe it or not, there were a few aspects of Leia's character I did not get to touch on in our two-parter episode on her. Sorry, I had to limit her, (laughs) y'all. 
<laughs> she limited me on this one too. I did. <laughs> I have even more thoughts. But most of these thoughts, uh, I've had reading the entire, yeah, the entire current comic series. But there are elements that are present in the film that you just get to explore more in the comics. And I thought it could be interesting to do some comparisons now that we've talked about Padme Amidala in the prequel trilogy, Feminist Movie Friday, who is Leia's biological mother. Right. So one aspect that they explore in the comics is this idea of ruthlessness or what it takes for Leia to lead the rebellion. A rebellion that is small and struggling and constantly on the verge of being destroyed. Uh, There's a storyline where Leia chooses to sacrifice Luke. And yes, Annie has told me this virgin a lot. (laughs) She has a lot of feelings on this. I do. That they don't have the speeders to spare in order to kill Darth Vader. She herself is willing to die if it kills him too. Han is appalled and yes, he's the one with the emotions in this part, right? And goes to save Luke and Leia later decides to come back for them. Yeah, so I do have a lot of thoughts about this. She does. There are a couple things going on here. Obviously, there are a lot of reasons Leia would want revenge against Darth Vader, and she is still dealing with a massive trauma. <laughs> on top of that, she's very young and trying to lead a rebellion that is constantly on the brink of extinction. So she has to make these tough calls. Leia is all about the cause. We talked about that, how it's like Luke is playing personal checkers and she's playing like galactic chess. She's <laughs> much more thinking about this bigger picture of how to defeat the Empire, and Luke is more on this personal path of discovery. But also, this whole thing is a part of her arc, learning to accept those softer parts of herself, allowing herself to be more open and caring to go after what she wants, or even admit she has personal needs, and that that is okay. As I'm watching The Rebels, and Uh she's introduced, and Ezra is just a dick the entire time to her. Mm -hmm. So I guess they're pushing that button on purpose to make that whole idea. Yeah. I, I feel like Ezra, in that case, they're trying very hard to be like, he's got a lot to learn. (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, going back to the story arc, in that same storyline, Luke crashed his ships into Vader's in an attempt to kill him. So, well, he's willing to die. And Leia saved him from Imperial capture and bounty hunters on more than one occasion. We know this. And in the comics, we see Leia making alliances with several strong women who are sometimes at best morally ambiguous. Like Afra, who we just talked yes. about. Yes. Uh, she has a nemesis who is a woman, and she connects with a woman struggling with her people only to be betrayed and the alliance losing a devastating amount because of it. Yeah, that was a real bummer. She was like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm connecting to you. I also feel this way I when I was a prisoner of Alderaan. Betrayed. Every time. Yeah. Well, and that woman's storyline was complicated as well. Not to flatten it. Uh, <laughs> she had a lot she was dealing with too. And Eve, I forgot, there's a whole part in the comic. So she's looking up at the night sky and she can still see Alderaan because the explosion, the light from the explosion hasn't reached her. So much trauma. There are a couple of other instances showcasing the darker side of Leia as a leader. Things that seem cruel or ruthless to the other characters in the story, which could open up a whole discussion on how we view women leaders. Because I think a man doing the same things might not be... I, I don't know. I don't know that they would be seen the same way. They might be applauded as a man making a tough call. Whereas with a woman, it might be she's a cruel ice queen. Um, I don't know. Uh, and also, to be clear, I have read all these comics, some of them twice, but generally most of them once. So... It's a lot of information to take in, Samantha. (laughs) 
in general, I do appreciate that Leia doesn't shy away from her emotions, including less feminine-coded ones like anger. Uh, but also, she doesn't shy away from the feminine-coded ones while really mastering that emotionless mask. She's really good at that, too. Something else that is explored in the comics are all the ways Leia shaped at the responsibilities of being a princess and at how the press always reduced her to that label no matter what she did. The wardrobe, the hair, the expectations. She once said to one of her aunts who was teaching her etiquette, quote, being a princess had to be about more than silently doing one's duty. And I'm pretty sure the aunt said something like, nope, that's almost all it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> She was adopted as a baby and raised as a princess by Bale and Brea Organa to keep her hidden from the Emperor and Darth Vader. From a young age, she rebelled and protested against things she saw as unjust, as well as showed an aptitude for politics. Like her biological mother, she became a senator as a teenager. She received training in self-defense and marksmanship and started working with the rebellion at a young age. She's a tomboy in a lot of ways and expressed a fear at being married off. That was an interesting thing I thought they explored. Uh, a fear that caused her to run away more than once. Leia did not fit the mold of a princess. Though when we first see her, she looks very much the part of a princess. And also, just a note, I know this is confusing, but when Disney bought Star Wars, there's now two... There's like the old canon, which is Legends and Abandoned, and the new canon, which is official Disney canon, they still use some stuff from the Legends canon in the Disney canon. But it can get really confusing. But this is mostly Disney canon. Okay, then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and something separate. And could be a whole episode on its own about how young women were and are treated in the entertainment industry and the impacts of the treatment when it comes to things like drug abuse and mental health and how we take that seriously or don't. And often outright mock it in women. Um, and we've seen that and we kind of talked about that, uh, about the women of the 90s episodes. But yeah, that should be a whole conversation because we do see that in reference to not only Carrie Fisher, uh, but she was mocked, I think, more than even Mark Hamill. And as you told me, the things that were happening on the holiday special that made it obvious... Yeah. So some people were altered. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, there's just a lot of when she's been, she's written about her experience and there's just a lot of instances where you're like, wow, this is not a good situation for a really young woman to be in. Right. <laughs> so I definitely think that's something we could revisit. But for now, we wanted to talk about some women who worked behind the scenes on these movies. But first, we're going to pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Thank you, sponsor. Since we have talked about Leia a lot in the past, even though I could go on and on and on, clearly, we thought we would highlight some important contributions women made to these movies you may not know about, starting with Marsha Lucas. You may have heard people say Star Wars was saved in the edit, and they're talking about A New Hope, episode four. One of those editors was Marsha Lucas, George Lucas's ex-wife. Marsha was born in California in 1945, she studied chemistry in college, but through her work as a film librarian, she found a love of film editing. 
After the previous editor left George Lucas's 1973 film, American Graffiti, he was really struggling with the structure of it. Marsha, who he had worked with previously, they had gotten married in 1969, stepped in and got to work, editing scenes, combining them, doing away with some altogether. The original runtime was three and a half hours long. She got it down to an hour and 15 minutes. Dang. <laughs> yeah. The finished product was critically acclaimed and resonated with audiences. Marsha received an Oscar nomination for her editing on that. Martin Scorsese took notice, and Marsha worked with him on three films. Uh, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Taxi Driver, and New York, New York. Right. Uh, but first, George Lucas did not hire Marsha to work on Star Wars, but he eventually asked her to replace one of the male editors, and she also helped with story elements as George was writing. She was the one to suggest that Obi-Wan Kenobi died at the hands of Darth Vader, which is hugely emotional and impactful moment for the audience and obviously for Luke, although he does move on pretty quickly. Uh, she resembled the climactic Death Star trench sequence so that it built tension and provided a satisfying conclusion and one of the most iconic and well-loved moments of the film. I definitely knew about that before I watched it. Mm -hmm. um, and in the original version, which you can still find, Luke took two runs at the trench, and it was too long and not very satisfying. She almost completely reordered it. For her work on this film, she won the 1978 Best Editing Academy Award along with two other editors. And Marsha was sometimes called George Lucas's, quote, secret weapon. In a 1977 interview, George said, I was struggling with a problem that I had, this sort of climactic scene that had no climax about two-thirds of the way through the film. I had another problem, the fact there was no real threat in the Death Star. The villains were like tin pins. You get into a gunfight with them, and then they just got knocked over. As I originally wrote it, Ben Kenobi and Vader had a sword fight, and Ben hits a door, and the door slams closed, and they all run away, and Vader's left standing there with egg oil on his face. This was dumb. They run into the Death Star and they sort of take over everything and then they run back. It totally diminished any impact the Death Star had. Anyway, I was rewriting. I was struggling with the plot problem when my wife suggested that I kill off Ben, which she thought was a pretty outrageous idea. And I said, well, that is an interesting idea and I had been thinking about it. Her first idea was to have 3PO get shot and I said impossible because I wanted to start and end the film with the robots. I wanted the film to really be about the robots and have the theme be framework for the rest of the movie. But then the more I thought about Ben getting killed, the more I liked the idea because one, it made the threat of Vader greater and that tied in with the Force and the fact that he could use the dark side. Both Alec Guinness and I came up with the thing of having Ben go on afterwards as part of the Force. All about them robots. <laughs> So after that, she kind of scaled back for a minute, providing some uncredited editing for movies like More American Graffiti and The Empire Strikes Back, and was one of the three official editors on The Return of the Jedi, where she edited the deaths of Yoda and Darth Vader slash Anakin Skywalker, two of the most emotional moments of the film. It really was. Um, the story goes that after watching a screening of Raiders of the Lost Ark, she told director Steven Spielberg that the ending didn't have any emotional resolution. And Spielberg agreed with her and shot an additional scene so that Indiana Jones was reunited with Marion Ravenwood. Apparently, in the original ending, she just kind of disappeared. So, you know, that makes sense. <laughs> in part, due to the success of things like Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Marsha and George's relationship deteriorated. Hmm. And Marsha asked for a divorce in 1982 that was announced in 1983. After that, she almost entirely dropped off the radar. In her words, to stop and smell the flowers, basically, 
She'd worked so hard for so long and she had the money and time. So why not? <laughs> Do y'all thing. Uh, yeah, exactly. She hardly did any interviews. She She's barely credited on any projects after that. And her work on things like Star Wars isn't talked about too often. Michael Kaminsky's 2008 work, The Secret History of Star Wars, has a whole chapter on her. He wrote... Marsha, along with many of George's friends, critiqued which characters worked, which ones didn't, which scenes were good, and Lucas composed the script in this way. Marsha was always critical of Star Wars, but she was one of the few people Lucas listened to carefully, knowing she had a skill for carving out strong characters. Often she was a voice of reason, giving him the bad news he secretly suspected. I'm hard, she said, but I only tell him what he already knows. She kept her husband down to earth and reminded him of the need to have an emotional throughline in the film. In 1983, Marsha said in an interview, I love editing and I'm real gifted at it. I have an innate ability to take good material and make it better or take bad material and make it fair. I'm compulsive about it. And um, I've worked many years as an editor. Let me tell you, you really can do a lot in the editing. It can be very, very creative. And I think for me, that was a misconception I had was that it was kind of cold and clinical Mm -hmm. uh, and just like cut here where there's a mistake. But there's so much more to it than that. In 2005, Mark Hamill, who plays Luke Skywalker, told Film Freak Central, you can see a huge difference in the films George Lucas had done since the divorce with Marsha. And in in that 2005 interview, he said, she was really the warmth and the heart of those films. A good person he could talk to you, bounce ideas off of, he would tell him when he was wrong. And that is one of the biggest critiques people have of the prequels, that they needed an editor, (laughs) someone to tell George Lucas, no, that's a bad idea. According to Hamill, I know for a fact that Marshall Lucas was responsible for convincing him to keep that little kiss for luck before Carrie Fisher and I swung across the chasm in the first film. Oh, I don't like it. People laugh in the previews. And she said, George, they're laughing because it's so sweet and unexpected. And her influence was such that if she wanted to keep it in, it was in. When the little mouse robot comes up when Harrison and I are delivering Chewbacca to the prison and he roars at it and it screams, sort of, and runs away, George wanted to cut that and Marsha insisted he keep it. I like that part. Yeah. And Kaminsky wrote, quote, she warned George, if the audience doesn't cheer when Han Solo comes in at the last second in the Millennium Falcon to help Luke when he's being chased by Darth Vader, the picture doesn't work. It works. And in a rare interview, Marsha said, I was the more emotional person who came from the heart and George was the more intellectual and visual. And I thought that provided a nice balance, but George would never acknowledge that to me. I think he resented my criticisms, felt that all I ever did was put him down. And in his mind, I always stayed the stupid valley girl. He never felt I had any talent. He never felt I was very smart and he never gave me much credit. And when we were finishing Jedi, George told me he thought I was a pretty good editor. In the 16 years of our being together, I think that was the only time he complimented me. Oh, uh, yeah, she needed to leave. <laughs> and remember, she was editing at a time when there were very few women working in that industry, a gap that exists to this day. Of the top 250 domestic grossing films in 2020, 22% of the film editors working on them were women. I couldn't find numbers specifically from like 1977, but I would imagine... They were lower than that. (laughs) (laughs) Some people argue that Marsha's impact is overstated. It's Star Wars. Of course, people argue about it. But you can't deny she was key and an influential element in these films that made cinematic history. I mean, if she's the one that reordered the Death Star Trench, that's iconic. Like, Right. If that... Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Right. There is someone else who you wanted to talk about behind the scenes. But first, we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. 
And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yeah, now let's talk about Lee Brackett, the queen of the space opera, and sometimes referred to as the first science fiction author to succeed in Hollywood. So Brackett was born in California in 1915. Her father, who was an aspiring writer, actually died during the 1918 flu pandemic. And Brackett did become a writer in 1939. And she joined the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society. In 1940, she published Martian Quest, her first story. Ooh. Over the next few years, she published several stories in science fiction magazines. And she wrote Detective Stories too. And her first novel, 1944's No Good From a Corpse. No Good From a Corpse was also well-received. And Brackett was asked to work alongside William Faulkner and Jules Furthman on the screenplay of the 1946 film The Big Sleep. Apparently, Howard Hawks, who directed it, told his assistant to call this guy Brackett <laughs> and later praised, she writes good, she writes like a man. Yeah. Aww. Thanks. <laughs> um, and she and her friend Ray Bradbury hmm, published the novella Lorelei of the Red Mist in 1946. By this point, she started publishing novel-length science fiction in magazines. Over 10 in the next decade or so, she was still writing mysteries and added westerns into the mix. She got screenwriting credit on several projects like 1959's Rio Bravo and 1973's The Long Goodbye. Some of her own works were adapted for television. Of note, a lot of her sci-fi space opera work was ridiculed for being lighter takes on sci-fi uh, with these elements of romance often called pulpy. And in fact, that nickname, the queen of space opera, was largely seen as a bad thing. Reminder, Star Wars is labeled as a space opera. So this is another <laughs> example of when a woman does something, it's frivolous and worthless. When a man does it, it's genius, groundbreaking, and award-worthy. Every time. Every time. But okay, we're talking about Star Wars. After the success of A New Hope and wanting to avoid all the stress working on it caused him, George Lucas wanted to ask someone else to write the script for the sequel. Plus, he was super busy with Industrial Light and Magic building Lucasfilm, and he was paying for it out of pocket. So why not? I, I've never been able to confirm this completely. But I think the holiday special might have something to do with that. He was like, never again will a company, will I be beholden to a studio? I'm paying for this myself. Um, so oh. technically, The Empire Strikes Back is an independent film. Oh, interesting. Yeah. He had some ideas, but no real plot in mind. He tapped Lee Brackett to write it. Lucas and Brackett met several times to nail down a very basic plot. A lot of it made it into the film. Brackett turned in the first early draft for The Empire Strikes Back. While there were elements that Lucas liked, there were several that he wanted to rework. Unfortunately, Brackett died of breast cancer in 1978, just a few weeks after she turned in this early draft. And Lucas tried his hand at a few drafts that were refined by Lawrence Kasdan. Her draft and the potential of what it would have become it had the potential to become, is sometimes referred to as the lost version of The Empire Strikes Back or the version you never saw. You can find the whole draft online, though, complete mm. with handwritten notes. A fan site called Star Wars with Z.com acquired the so-called Holy Grail in 2010 and scanned and uploaded it. I know you've read it. What do you I think? <laughs> it's weird. It's... um. It's much more, it's got much more fantasy in it. It's much more on like fantasy side and it's got a lot more romance. But it's beautiful and, and it's beautifully written. 
some of the dialogue is pretty clunky. But again, this was a first draft, so I think it's right. probably very like here are the you beats. Hash it out. Yeah, it's recognizable. Like there are some scenes you're like, yeah, this is the Empire Strikes, mm-hmm. but this is what ended end up in the movie. Nice. Mm-hmm. So while a lot of her story got reworked or dropped. As you can tell, uh, some key elements remain in the film. The Battle of Hoth is in it, which was a risky decision at the time to put your big budget fight scene right at the top as opposed to the end. Luke's and R2's separation from Han, Leia, Chewie, and 3PO. You've got frog-like Yoda, mm-hmm. the backpack. But at the time, he was named Buffy. Oh, I'm really glad I changed that. <laughs> in fact, the whole sequence of Luke training on Dagobah remains pretty unchanged. Lando's in it, the asteroid-filled chase, the love triangle, much, much more focused on that in the first draft. The introduction of the Emperor, a city in the clouds, the name Bespin is in the script as is Hoth, though for different planets. C-3PO gets blasted apart. Uh, Han, Chu, and Leia are used as bait to lure Luke in the climactic confrontation between Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, where Vader tries to turn Luke to the dark side. All those big story beats are there, uh, minus the I am your father thing and loss of hand, though he does still fall through Cloud City to get away from Vader and is rescued by the Millennium Falcon. However, even in this early draft, the connection between Luke and Vader was integral to the plot. Vader, a menace hunting Luke throughout. Uh, the ending is kind of similar, too, with Luke and Leia watching on as Han and Chewie fly off into space. Yes. That was a long list. Those plot mm-hmm. points were all there. Yeah. Even so, George Lucas doesn't really acknowledge it, or he kind of does, but not in a good way. I feel like maybe he's... It's complicated with like union stuff. I don't know. Okay. Uh, He once said, I didn't like the first script, but I gave Lee credit because I like her a lot. She was sick at the time. She wrote the script and she really tried her best. During the story conferences I had with Lee, my thoughts weren't fully formed and felt that her script went in a completely different direction, which she is in the credits. Uh, And he made sure that she was credited alongside Lawrence Kasdan for writing. And to do that, because I don't know the ins and outs of this, but basically the rules of the Writers Guild of America to make sure that they gave her screenwriting credit, he intentionally didn't submit drafts of his own of the script. And I do, I mean, I've read it and it is, it's weird. It's one of those things where it almost feels like a, a fan fiction of, because those beats are there, but it is much more fantastical. So I don't know. Like, I feel like I get what he's saying in terms of it went in a completely different direction, but at the same time, I'm like, mm. Kind of she not. gave him a good base. Yeah, a lot of it is there. <laughs> but, okay, that's not to say that some things didn't change from that early draft. Her version did contain a lot more elements of fantasy from the final script, like the, the big ice creatures in the beginning. They were like ghosts. They could like disappear. Ooh. And in some of the deleted scenes of The Empire Strikes Back, you can really see some leftover elements from her original idea, which I do maintain every scene they deleted from The Empire Strikes Back. Thank God they did. But like, there's an attack of the Wampas, the ice creatures. The, the love triangle is more emphasized. In her version, Leia was much more damselly. Really a love interest, not much else. So it's good that that changed, though. Some people have pointed out that this minimizing of Leia manifested in the gold bikini scenes in Return of the Jedi see our Princess Leia episodes for more on that. I don't really think you can blame Brackett alone for that, though. <laughs> right. Absolutely not. Uh, so the Empire is barely in it, too, which is 
funny given the title of the movie, but at the time, it was just Star Wars 2, so there that is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Vader's character wasn't really fleshed out yet, didn't have any discernible motivation other than revenge for the Death Star, but he was much more active in attacking Luke with the Force no matter where in the galaxy he was, so there's that. Yeah, he could like make him pass out by just thinking it. it was weird. Luke manages to pull his ship out in Dagobah, so that whole, like, do or do not, there is no try. He does! Um, Whereas in the movie, he does not. He learns the ability to summon Force Ghost. So that's different. And he summons his father, who is not Darth Vader. Not only that, but his father's ghost reveals to him that he does have a twin sister, but it is not Leia. It is someone named Nelith, who you never hear about again. Most likely that was going to be resolved in the third movie. But the twin thing did end up getting used. Mm -hmm. Just not in this one. His father, along with Ben, knight Luke as a Jedi and tell him to face Vader. So he becomes a Jedi knight in this one. And it, yeah, when you think about it, the Force ghost element is a pretty fantastical thing that ultimately survived to the final films. I know Lucas said that he and Alec Guinness fleshed it out, but I've never really thought about that as being kind of like, yeah, it's like a fantasy. <laughs> and it seems like she kind of introduced kyber crystals too, which are the crystals that power lightsabers and did go on to become pretty important in other media in the Star Wars universe. And she also introduced Vader's castle, which for those of you who don't know, I mean, Vader, he's got a castle. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that. He does. On the the planet where Mustafar, the lava planet where he lost his arms and legs, he's got a nice castle. Lovely. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's Volcano wonderful. side home. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Volcano side home. Uh, there are no bounty hunters in her version, so there's no Boba Fett. There's no Han getting frozen. Han is much more a rebel soldier and much less a smuggler kind of sticking around. Right. And then Lando's character is still charming and charismatic, but he's much more lonely, a clone leftover from the Clone Wars, which I feel like it's like the rebel slash Clone Wars. Yeah? hmm The cartoon. hmm He says to Han, quote, It didn't seem strange to us, but to see our own faces endlessly repeated in the streets of our city, it gave us a sense of oneness, of belonging. Now when every face is new and different, I feel truly alone. He also still betrays Han. Uh, Brackett described Lando as, quote, handsome like Rudolph Valentino, who was an actor and a sex symbol of his time. Yeah. Yeah. After her death, Brackett received several awards recognizing her impact on the science fiction genre, including a 1981 Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation for The Empire Strikes Back, and she was inducted into the Science Fiction Hall of Fame in 2014. And fun fact! The character Sheriff Brackett from the 1978 film Halloween was named after her. Interesting. Yeah. And she was also doing this at a time when there weren't that many women working as screenwriters. Not to mention in the genre of science fiction, which was much more seen as male-dominated genre. Of the top 250 domestic grossing films in 2020, only 17% of writers were women. And again, I couldn't find numbers from when she was doing this, but I imagine even lower. Even lower. Mm -hmm. So The Empire Strikes Back is one of the most celebrated movies of all time. Is this your favorite movie, Annie? Mm Mm-hmm. Right, so I thought. All time. All time. And it changed not only the cinematic landscape, but people's ideas around sequels and what they could accomplish. I do hear this one and The Godfather 2 as the better of the trilogies. Just put that out there. Uh, So much of it's iconic, and we owe a lot of that to Brackett, obviously. And she only had one crack at the draft. It's interesting... 
to wonder what would have happened. And I, I know that you, when we first watched it, you made sure to go to the credits to see her, if her name was there. <laughs> God, I was so excited that first time. Yeah, you were. I was so excited. You were so excited. <laughs> oh, I love sharing things that I love. Um, <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope that you listeners maybe have learned something new or uh, that you have enjoyed the celebratory episode for Revenge of the Fifth. And I always love talking about this clearly. Yes. (laughs) It's been a delight. And I love it too. It has been a delight. Yes. Yes. So happy May the 4th and Revenge of the Fifth. And remember, without these amazing women, both real and fictional, we would not have had this piece of historic and beloved entertainment. So their impact on generations of us, and particularly women and girls, truly cannot be overstated. It's true. Yes. It's gonna be my... I just want to add that to it. You had to do it. You had to do it, I know. I had to. So, listeners, if you have any thoughts about any of this or any suggestions, we do take them. We have a list and we're always happy to receive them. You can email us at stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Instagram at Stuff I Never Told You or on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. Thanks as always to our super producer, Christina. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 